Are anarcho-capitalists insane? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Vincent Geloso. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Vincent Geloso. Vincent is an assistant professor of economics at King's University College. He obtained his PhD from the London School of Economics. He was previously a postdoctoral researcher at Texas Tech University and visiting assistant professor of economics at Bates College. His research interests sit at the intersection of North American economic history, population economics, and political economy. Vincent has been very widely published in academic journals. You can find his research in publications like the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, Public Choice, the Journal of Economic History, and Social Science Quarterly. That's just to name a few. He's also a regular speaker for the ILS, particularly in the ILS's annual French language seminar, the Seminar d'Etudes Libérales. He was previously a guest on The Curious Task as well. He tackled the question, should we care about inequality? And we definitely encourage everyone to check out that episode as well. Today, he's back to talk with us about anarcho-capitalism. Vincent, welcome to The Curious Task again. Pleasure to be here. So in each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the conversation takes us, as you know. Our question today is, are anarcho-capitalists insane? And I think before you present your verdict on that, uh, we need some more context. So let me ask first, let's have you define what anarcho-capitalism is. Okay, so look, I, I want to provide the, the answer first. The answer is no and yes. They are mildly crazy, but not that much. And not and the, the part that they're crazy for is not the reason why most people would think they are okay now what what do i mean by anarcho like how do we define anarcho capitalist so the interest i have in the economics of anarchy is uh was stemmed from exposing myself to uh, the literature that some libertarian thinkers uh had produced uh some of which was actually in french so people don't notice but uh when people date like the line of arguments for anarcho capitalism uh, it starts with mostly English writers, uh, but there's actually a stronger French tradition uh, uh, towards a certain anarchic bent. Uh, but I was interested in it not because of the normative implication, but because it was interesting from an economics perspective. Uh, so some people like anarcho-capitalism as a research answer, and I don't I don't commit myself to answers. I commit myself to questions. Uh, and I prefer to consider anarcho-capitalist as a research question. And that question is, how well do people provide governance goods in situations of statelessness? And by that, and it's important that I define what governance goods means here, is uh, that governments are a subset of governance. But you don't have to be a government to you don't have to be a government to have governance goods. So what we what I'm interested in is how people create forms of governance in settings where there is no state to enforce by uh, coercion certain arrangements. Uh, so, for example, we think and by and by this is that there's a scientific justification that's advanced for the need of a state is that markets could not provide in certain quantities the goods that we would require for order and trade to occur so police justice certain public goods uh, arbitrage national defense so you need some form of state to prevent kind of your hobbesian jungle and what i was interested in is well how true is that statement 
and that's how I got interested into uh, this line of research and started publishing on on the topic. So, simply put, what is the study that we that is of interest to like anarcho capitalism and more broadly defined? So, if we want to go into normative. We'll talk about anarcho-capitalism. If we want to go into the positive, like the scientific description, I mean the economics of anarchy. They're somewhat interrelated. But the two of them speak of the how do markets, in the absence of a coercive state, like kind of the, the Weberian definition, like there's a monopoly on a certain geographical area, in a certain geographical area, on violence by states. How much of that is true, that you need to have a state to have governance goods be produced that is the main question that's at hand uh yeah that's where i i'd start in terms of definition right and there's something i also want to clarify right front too like as you know when we talk about anarcho-capitalism and anarcho-capitalist theory there's often a dichotomy within anarcho-capitalism uh, some people will call themselves and again i know people listening will have all kinds of labels and different ideas but generally speaking you can kind of put what, what we may call the natural rights anarcho-capitalists on the one hand and maybe some consequentialist ones on the other like a consequentialist anarcho-capitalist might be someone like David Friedman, for example. Anyway, my, my point in bringing this up is to say that um, you definitely seem to be more interested in that latter discussion, right? Like anarcho-capitalism yeah. from a consequentialist perspective. So I'm, I'm not sure if you want to go a bit more into that, but that's definitely what I got out of your, your research and writing on this. Yes. So I'm much more interested. So there's a there's going to be a follow-up to uh, that I'm going to say, but there's a disclaimer I have to give. I don't even know what I am. I know I'm broadly like in the classical liberal family. I do think that people understudy the topic of anarchy and underestimate how well it functions. For sure. But some people also do overestimate how well it functions. So mm -hmm. I'm hesitant to make any sort of uh, normative claim, which is why I'm interested in, in kind of the consequentialist uh, part. Now, the, there's like true... And now the follow-up is the follow is what I'm about to say is that there's two sets of of arguments that are made, two sets of questions that are asked within the bigger question of how do people produce governance goods outside of a state without a state being there or in the presence of a very weak state it doesn't have to be like no state just like a state that has little tool for enforcement and there's a big literature on how people create these arrangements and what conditions make them emerge and that is actually a very rich field the part that actually has been less documented and the one that i have a comparative advantage is is what are the outcomes since i my main field is as an economic historian is the measurement of living standard which is heavily related to what we talked in the, the other podcast we did with inequality i specialize in measuring the many facets of living standards, wages, income, consumption, uh, and linking these different components as part of a dashboard and linking them together to provide an understanding of welfare, right? right. Or, or well-being, better word than welfare, the well-being of individuals and doing so in a comparative framework. And what I was interested in is, okay, here's like this literature that seems to suggest that people are actually quite good at producing governance goods outside of uh in the presence of a weak state or in the situation of statelessness but does that mean that it's something that does well does it mean that it generates high quality outcomes or is it just because it was the only thing that was on the table but it's a poor society 
and it's largely because they're too poor to have a state or something, some explanation like this. So it's not something you'd want to make the trade-off from. So if you're interested in anarchy as a research question, the first part of the question is, uh, how do people make these arrangements? All right. So how do they sustain themselves? How do they become an equilibrium? The second question is, what are the outcomes from this, and how do they compare with other, with other vi like potential outcomes? Like, does it, are there improvements? Are there deterioration? How do they compare with societies that have bigger states or stronger states, uh, or simply have states? So we're interested in like this set of dimensions of of living standard. And the last follow up question is the one that few anarcho capitalists like to ask because it kind of conflicts with their idea that's worth asking, is if you imagine a box that's a two-by-two two, and you have how developed your society is on one of the axes and how big of a state you have, we have examples of rich societies with strong states. Sweden, Canada, the United States, France. We have countries with weak states that are poor, right? Uh, we have, for example, sub-Saharan economies. We have failed nations. We have uh, we have those. We also have some societies that have strong states but are very poor. Cuba, the USSR, uh, historical example being the Byzantine Empire. But there is no current example of societies that are rich and have weak states. And we can't point to any of them. We have some historical example some of my work fills that box that they existed at one point but they never last for long why is that is the other the last other key question to complete kind of the economics of anarchy as as a question uh and it explains and this allows me to give me to give you the answer like explain my answer that i gave at the beginning like no and yes uh no they're not crazy Right, anarcho-capitalists actually do have some form of, of a point, which is that living standards in societies where there is no monopoly on coercion, where uh, governance goods are mostly provided through non-state mechanisms, actually do generate very, very good outcomes. Sometimes surprisingly better, uh, and that is very surprising. And uh, for me, it was like I expected, honestly, when I started this, that I'd find that eh, they do either equal or somewhat worse. Uh, and the argument then if, is how much you prefer the normative implication, like on the pure normative ground that this is better than anything else. But actually, in terms of even pure conservative, very conservative assessment of living standards, actually generate really decent outcomes. That's the no part of them, whether or not they're crazy. Uh, the part that's yes is that the, the other question that I asked was, why is it that we don't have a box? And it's especially more stronger to ask now. Why is it that we don't have a box that's filled with weak states that are rich societies. Why is it that we don't see that today? Why don't we see those examples? And that was even more distressing after I found my result that actually they, they yield examples of rich societies because it could be that that box is purely empty because they suck at it, right? right. It could have been simply that. Like they're just really bad at doing this job. Uh, but now if they're not that bad at doing this job, why is it that this box is empty? Uh, the answer to this is that there is that it's an unstable equilibrium. You cannot persist in a low state 
capacity box with rich societies because either that invites predation. You either get attacked by others, right? Or you have in that, that way you're conquered and you're swallowed by another group, or you have to yourself build a state to organize violence to protect yourself. So that the argument that I have is that it's an anarcho-capitalist framework is by by definition unstable. It will not last. So those who think about it from a as kind of an ideal are thinking to an ideal, uh, sticking to an ideal that uh, cannot persist in time, even though the few moments where the conditions for it to occur occurred yielded very good outcomes. It can't last forever. Uh, is the the the, the answer I'm I'm providing to are they insane? No, and yes. And I just want to like touch on something real quick before we get to now drill into the the paper you wrote and, and, and all that great stuff. So uh, since this isn't an economic history podcast, I want you to spend just a couple minutes on on you know at a high level. Of course, we don't need to get too technical at this point, but your your methodology and how what you aim to do as an economic historian. Because in your answer right there, there's probably some people that go, "Aha, Vincent! Like here's let me tell you why anarchy could work." But I'm not sure if at that point they might be jumping the gun and and they're really thinking about what you touched on before, which is, again, the explanations of how it could work in theory. But that's that's not really your, your job and what you seek to do as an economic historian, yeah. right? So why don't you go a bit into that? So I'm interested in the theory in a certain way because it helps me guide my to make predictions, right? And there's actually good papers that do this. Like for those who are interested, there's like Peter Leeson has written an old book on this. Uh, his best work on like ways that order is provided, governance goods are provided without a state is like the paper he calls ordeals. Uh, which is like a religious practice that actually generated by virtue of people believing that there was godly intervention actually generated order. Uh, I've done similar work on historical examples using theory with Louis Rouenet on how people reduce social distance between them. Uh, Ed Stringham has done work on how uh, securities markets emerge even though they're outside the law, right? They're not defined as actually a legal activity and how the people actually govern very complex contracts without any form of a state enforcement behind it. And all of this hinges on a theoretical conversation, which is that there are mechanisms by which we know that anarchy, that governance goods can be provided in a stateless or weak stake environment. Uh, the discipline of continuous dealings is one of the main key features is that if I expect the revenue of future trades to go to zero because I cheat you, right? Then by virtue of your reputation alone and the risk of ostracism, then governance is provided through reputation. Reputation is a form of governance good. Then the question is, when is that too weak to operate? Is it when people don't value the future revenues enough? So I really want to cheat now, right? I want to steal from you now because tomorrow I'm dead if I don't cheat now right? Then I'm discounting the future too much to do that trade. So that would be a case where it would break down. So we have like kind of theoretical predictions that we can build on and make from these theories, like uh, a way to predict what happens and how people would resolve this. And all this starts from theory. But then theory is a useless pile of crap if you don't try them out, right? I can be in my office on a blackboard and say this is uh, logically consistent and inherently true, right? There is no flaw of logic in there. But it could be that it's irrelevant to the real world, 
Mm -hmm. Right. So that's that's the idea that people have. Or is it that I'm missing an assumption that makes this irrelevant? Right. So theory needs to have some form of validation. So you can start from purely deductive. You can start from purely inductive reasoning where it's pure axiomatic reasoning, like saying uh, if a trade happens between two people that are free, we know that it's mutually beneficial. Right. I don't need to know to go on the ground to test this out. This is like a pure axiom. It doesn't mean that all the assumptions that I've made actually apply in the real world. Right. So generally that means that you have to move from the theoretical framework to an empirical one and test out their relevance in the world that people make choices in. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not that it's it's wrong. It's just that you need to go and actually make these. And this is why I'm an economic historian as I'm interested in a lot of economic theory and I try to master them as much as possible, but my intent for mastering them is to see how people in the past acted and to what extent those do those theory explain the choices that are made by people in diverse contexts with different constraints, with different costs in which they're making choices and different endowments. Like what is their setting in which they're making choices and why is it that they yield to different choices using economic analysis? So this is why I'm not interested that much in like the pure normative round. Like here's how it would be good and it's great. And it'd be like this fantasia of whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not interested in that because it's, I, it's just not my got my gear set where right. I'm much more interested in just going back to history and seeing how much does this apply? Now, I kind of like the idea sometimes, and then uh, because I'm neither, and this is, I'm going to open a small small parenthesis here. Uh, this is a phrase that Ben Powell told me that I always thought actually summarized the ambivalence that I get is you either are a pure rights person or you have some form of consequentialist view, and people think that you have to hold one or the other. But the thing is, is I would clearly tickle someone's feet to save the world against his will, right? Like, clearly, it's an easy choice. But I wouldn't kill an old grandma to save two kids, right? There is somewhere in between that I'm in. Like, no one holds pure definition of them. And those who want to hold to, like, here's how it will work in theory and how it would be so great normatively, I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm not sure. Right, I'm more interested in seeing how people made the choices in the settings they were in, and how they produced those governance goals and what the outcomes were. I'm not trying to say this is a research answer. This is why I'm saying it's a research question. That makes sense. And actually, on that note, I think that's a great backdrop to now we can jump into that vein and actually talk about one of the papers and some of the research you've done on the topic. And uh, some, if we do have some anarcho-capitalists listening to you right now, they, they might be they might be a little upset, but but they shouldn't be. I'll turn them back on to you and, and onto them back on to liking you, Vincent, because I'll tell them right now that you've actually helped them answer a question that sometimes they, they actually might be, be stumped with or something that they're thrown flippantly. So even in your paper, you say one of the hardest things that sometimes an anarcho-capitalist or, or someone even sympathetic to those ideas runs into is that they often have a hard um, time pointing to a solid quote-unquote exhibit A for an example of where some of these institutions or some of these frameworks could have worked. And you say, well, we do actually have an, a sort of an exhibit A we can point to, uh, and it's called Medieval Iceland. Uh, so before we get into some specific uh, discussions on on the methodology of your paper and, and what you found, can you kind of just give us a backdrop and talk about what it medieval iceland look like as you studied it It, you know bring us there okay so let's like do a short brief like 
economic history of economic thought. Uh, in the seventies, there was a rise of people of how of anarchy itself, like as a as a as a the production of governance and anarchy, and it culminated with like there was some works by Murray Rothbard and a few others. The work of Rothbard, I'm not that fond of because there's always this tint of what Rothbard wants and what the world is and it's always been a puzzle for me even though I, I always like reading Rothbard I just I'm, I'm like there's there's the there's the there's the ideological part of me that conflicts with the social scientist part of me and I always try to make sure that the social scientist parts of me wins uh, but it's still an interesting book but it culminated in refined efforts notably by david friedman who took the case of medieval iceland because it was so weird and it's so well documented so think about it like this these are the details for iceland and how crazy and how, since i haven't cussed yet fucked up it was right so the the iceland example was that there was indeed no centralized state what you had was an assembly of chieftains and the chieftains, which I'm not, I'm not going to pronounce the, the Icelandic word for it because I'm clearly going to destroy it. And if any, there's any Icelanders in, in the group, they're going to kill me for it, for me, for me trying. Uh, but these local chieftains, so assembled together and made laws together, but the enforcement of these laws was entirely private. So there was no state police. And there's other features that make it even crazier. First of all, the, the chieftains could sell their positions. They could sell to buy and sell their position as chieftains. So that was a tradable position. The other part that made it interesting is that the congregation, because they, they were kind of a not exactly a religious position, but they were they had there was a somewhat of a religious component. They ruled over a congregation. But the thing is, is that congregation, you didn't have authority over it. People could also shift between congregations regardless of geography so it could just be that i'm switch the same way you'd switch between cable providers right so that's really weird that's a really weird things where you would shift between different chieftains and the chieftains had to produce governance goods such as policing arbitrage uh uh, uh marches and other other stuff that people would join them and since people could defect between the different chieftains Right, they couldn't abuse of them very easily, and so there was this check mechanism that existed on the powers of a chieftain. That's one thing that was really, really interesting about it. The other part is, and that's even weirder, is that today people forget, and this is probably because we live in societies where the state has appropriated anything that's related to justice. But in so today, when the, it says like the king versus X, or right, or Quebec versus Geloso, right? Any person that commits an offense, uh, the restitution happens to the state, right? So it's not the it's not the party that's the actual victim that gets compensated. In the past, that was not exactly the case, right? Actually, in the past, restitution retribution was left to private parties so that they could negotiate. And if you think about it from a pure economics perspective, it's something you might actually prefer. Because if, let's say, you kill my cow, right, sending you to jail doesn't bring me back some of the lost wealth, right? Allowing us to trade and you not going to jail, but you pay me a penalty, at least is welfare improving in as much as, okay, there's the deterrence that's still there. If there's like 
an enforcement. But the fact that there's restitution does provide a superior arrangement in terms of living standard. And here's the part that's weird about Iceland, is that back then legal claims were transferable. So if you killed my brother, right, I, you'd have a hard time. My brother's like super freaking huge. He's a farmer. <laughs> he's like, he's a, he's a, anyways, if you, if you killed him, right. And I thought you, that was a wrong that you did. Uh, and judgment was passed, but I didn't have the means to enforce it. I was too poor or something like this. I could sell my claim to somebody like the chieftain, right? And the chieftain would make sure to enforce that claim and he would collect upon you. And he'd say, look, Vincent sold me the right to collect upon you, right? Judgment was rendered and it's $1,000, right? That I sold it to him. I have to at least make more than $1,000 from you. So let's make a deal, right? So there was some form of restitution that happened through that mechanism. And the fact that you could switch, that you could sell it, meant that the weak could not be easily abused by the more powerful. So basically imagine it like that. Enforcement, there was some laws being produced by the chieftains who assembled, right? And justice was rendered by them, right? So they made judgments. But afterwards, every form of enforcement was entirely private. On top of that, the chieftains, before they, they, they assembled to make those laws, were imputable to their constituent, their congregation members, who could switch between them. So this is not a state. Right. There is no geographic monopoly. There is no monopoly on violence. Uh, it's, not, there's, it's basically like the close, like in the pure, like if you take a pure political science description of what a state is, is uh, a monopoly on violence in a certainly geographically defined area. There, there isn't one. There isn't a monopoly in this case. So that's been the example that uh, David Friedman provided in a paper in the late 70s in the Journal of Legal Study. It's a heavily cited paper, and it was super influential because it documented all the theoretical elements that made this actually a stable equilibria for roughly 300 years. Right? So it lasted for 300 years. And the part that were weird that Friedman pointed out was that it had a very low crime rate. It actually had uh, a homicide rate that equaled the one the U.S. had in the 70s. Hmm. If you compare it to work like the Wozos of Manuel Eisner and others who tried to look at crime uh, homicides in medieval Europe, uh, it's actually like map, map, orders of magnitudes below what you observed in the rest of Europe, which is, whoa, crazy. As, as, an, as an estimate. Uh, so how did that, so that example has been the one that anarcho capitalists say, ah, all right, we have, we have a case of uh, this, uh, but there's like this big glitch that people kept pointing out and I thought was a really valid one is it's medieval Iceland. Right, right. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, it's in the name, right? It, uh, I wouldn't even want to go to Iceland today right <laughs> like I'm, I'm sorry it's like it's a nice place it's a rich country it's uh but it's like one of the few places that make a canadian go oh my god this is a cold place right like for a canadian to say this is a cold hard place it's oh that's that's a statement right so let's be honest it's not like it's not a place you'd want to be and when you look at the description that people had of the place it didn't seem like it was exceptionally rich or 
above, or you couldn't know if it was above or below what other societies uh, had at this time. And from the perspective of the economic story, that was the part that was actually interesting is, look, we have this case where all the theoretical elements for making it work are there and well-documented. All we need now is to know, well, there's a comparative work to be done, which is how well does this place fare relative to those that have a state or stronger states, right? Uh, so let's do that exercise. So it could just be that Iceland was just too poor to have a state or that even, even weirder is that it was so poor that no states was worth investing in. That's actually an excellent place to head into our break and it's right that time. So we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task and I'm speaking with Vincent Geloso. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Chris Rondolo, Lawrence Kong, and Liam O'Brien. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Vincent Geloso today. Uh, Vincent, we I think we put the intermission in the, in the exact right place. You were giving us the backdrop of a medieval Iceland. Uh, now we're back, and you were just mentioning that, you know, of course, the thing to do would be to look at that time in history and compare medieval Iceland to other territories, governments, whatever the case may be around it, right? And of course, you focused on living standards in your paper. You encourage yep. the you encourage right in the paper for readers not to think of medieval Iceland as compared to Canada today. That's not what we're doing. You compared medieval Iceland to the other situations around it, and you used living standards as the the bar. So why don't you take us through a bit of that methodology and, and what you found? So we did three things. We looked at three components of what we could deem as examples that living standards were increasing. Uh, the first one is population growth. Is normally in societies without much technological innovation, you shouldn't you should have a stable population equilibrium. So you should have like a stable level of population uh, and income should stay at that at that level. Now, if you see population growth, it means that you actually have technological innovation, right? That means that there's some form of growth somewhere, right? In a world with like no technological innovation, you can't have population growth that's eternal because you just get decreasing marginal returns. It's just like a very simple statement from classical economics from from uh, Robert from uh, 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 from Maltus, uh, who document who made the first case for this, and what we find is that Iceland gets a very fast rate of population growth, mm. uh, and it's sustained for two centuries. While in the rest of Europe, it's nowhere close. So that was the first sign that something's happening. You can't sustain such fast growth, especially in an environment that's so hostile to agriculture. Right. So there's something happening in terms of living standard. And this is supplemented by two forms of evidence that are much stronger, right? So they're not only suggestive, they're, they're, they're much more suggestive, in fact. Uh, one is human heights. So human stature is highly related 
And nutrition is also highly related to income, especially at low levels of income, right? After a certain point, if you go from 1 million to $2 million, the change, the effect on nutrition is, is limited. But if you go from near poverty to well above the poverty line, the effect on nutrition is much, uh, much. And the effect on nutrition is then repertory onto the, uh, your heights. So we expect better fed people to be taller. Period. That's the simple way to put it. Uh, and what we find is when we look at archaeological remains, so skeletals, basically, uh, skeletons, sorry, that was me ha- mixing French and English in my head. Uh, if you look at skeletons in, uh, in medieval Iceland, you actually find that they're exceptionally tall, much taller than people from Britain, uh, taller than probably taller. We're not there's some margin of errors. It's not clear if it's statistically significant, uh, but they're taller than other Scandinavians. So even within their close genetic group, they're actually uh, they're actually very tall. That's very suggestive of high living standing. And the last effort we did is we were able to look at these older historical documents from medieval Iceland. Uh, they're called the Gragas. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, uh, but they're the early laws of Iceland, which is what, like, they're not exactly laws in a sense of what we mean today is that they're right. the kind of common traditions that get gradually written down, uh, more than anything else. It's more of a, it's not exactly a common law thing, but it's more like a common law and they keep information about stuff, notably stuff that allowed us to estimate wages. And when you were able to convert these wages into the quantities of certain goods that they bought, fishes, uh, uh, butter, cheese, et cetera, et cetera, uh, what you find is that, oh my, they're actually roughly on par with places like England. And on some of these metrics, they're actually above uh, England. And England is chosen because it's the other one that gives us the most data for that point in time. So we actually find that there's good signs for saying that Iceland is a relatively rich place at the time. Even though it's a barren land, doesn't, it's not really good for agriculture relative to the rest of Europe. It's, uh, more, it's a more hostile environment to human populations than the rest of Europe. Uh, it's geographically isolated, and yet there are signs that they actually match the rest of Europe which is very telling. And the other part is that it's a very egalitarian society in terms of distribution of those living standards. So for those at the bottom, it's a, it's a good, it's a, it's actually probably true that people like bottoms 10% of Iceland back then was probably doing better than all the the bottom 10% of the rest of Europe. That's a very, very surprising finding uh, that we get just to tie that section off. Let's so what we had on the on the one hand was England, and on the other hand, medieval Iceland. The study there were, and what we had was two different um, structures of law and order, and uh, uh, let's call it justice more broadly. But what we didn't have was a lawless, uh, chaotic society on the one hand in Iceland, and in 
and an orderly society in Britain where, where people were taller and having a great time as compared to the medieval Icelanders. The key here is that these are comparable societies in terms of living standards, but radically different in terms of their um, their framework. That is perfectly, that's a perfectly correct statement. So, so I guess, again, that should give lots of people pause to think that their immediate assumption before they read your paper or listened to this might have been like, well, if we have medieval Iceland as as a bunch of quote unquote anarcho capitalists, then we're we're, we're obviously going to see some a disaster. But we didn't, so that is very interesting. I I I'm actually still puzzled by by my finding. Uh, I expected something much worse, but uh, no, it seems to suggest that uh, it was it was doing quite well, and the rest of Europe was matching Iceland, even though Iceland gets a lot of environmental. And the thing that seems to play in its favor is the role of institutions there. And these institutions are governance goods that are produced without a state, and they seem to yield outcomes that match places that are that have more favorable settings and stronger states. They're not they're not modern states the way we think of them, but there are some former states. Notably, there is like the main difference, I think, is like to briefly mention is that there is no feudalism in Iceland while it's there in the rest of Europe, which tells you a little about the level of uh, of states that exist in one place versus the other. I think we're going to go forward on our timeline here. We're going to leave medieval Iceland and, and go, go go just a little bit later. Uh, let, let's talk about Acadia. You've written yep. about this, and uh, I'm just going to throw it right over to you. First of all, some people may not know, what, what was Acadia and, uh, and and why is this significant to our conversation? So Acadia is the French colonized parts of Atlantic Canada in the 18th, 17th and 18th century. Uh, that's it. That's the area. It's like basically uh, the, Minis, uh, the, uh, the Bay of Fundy, uh, uh, the part that where there's like this big bay where there's Nova Scotia on one side and New Brunswick on the other. And if you keep going down, uh, you'll get to Maine in the United States. That's the area where a large population of French settlers established themselves. And the thing is, is that because it was at the borderland and it kept switching constantly between French and English, and neither the French or English actually tried to establish a strong state presence, the settlers there were pretty much left to fend for themselves. And there was no, and this can be seen notably in the institutions that are there, uh, the land tenure, and actually the land tenure there doesn't look like anything there is in the other French colony in North America, Quebec. Uh, it's more or less homesteading where people just take land and there's no form of state. The part that's really weird is that in situation of statelessness, you don't they do, they couldn't organize violence very efficiently, and they couldn't delegate they couldn't delegate the cost of violence on other parties. And the weird consequence of that is that if you look at what historians and anthropologists say of the relations between the French settlers and the Micmacs, the Micmacs being the in the the First Nation Indians that were there before, historians have called it exceptionally peaceful. That there were constant trades between the two. They respected each other in very clear way. And uh, uh, that there was intermixing between the two. So it seems that it was uh, that it, it was in a situation of statelessness. The French and English never tried to implement a strong state. Uh, in the case of the Acadians, what, what they did is they imported an institution from France, the parish assembly, 
which in France was used for tax purposes, but in Acadia, there was no monopoly on anything. All it was was kind of a meeting to decide, okay, collectively, what do we do? That was really important securing trades with the natives and making it peaceful is that they coordinated large efforts so as to not trespass on Indian soils. And they actually used this as a signal to the Indians of, look, we are committed. We're not going to infringe your property. But not only that, the goods that we produce on these agricultural lands will allow us to buy furs from you, which we will then sell to Europeans. And we don't care which Europeans, right? They can be French or English. We don't really care which one it is. The one that offers the highest price we'll sell into. And it's we could use the limited data that was there for Acadia and estimate GDP. And that was super useful because I've done the same thing for Quebec and for the American colonies that's been done. And from that, I could create a ranking. And not only that, not just an ordinal ranking, but a cardinal one of which society was richest or poorest. And Acadia is as rich as New England, but massively richer than the other French colony in the Americas, namely Quebec. So in the 18th century, it is one of the richest places in the Americas. And that's using very conservative assumptions uh, of living standards. They do very, very, very well. Population growth, like I did for Iceland, is very fast. It's like 6% extra population every year. No society matches this in like record, like few societies in human history matches 6% population growth year in, year out. It's, 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 it's impressive. Uh, they're very well fed. They have very, uh, very high incomes. And they have peaceful relations with the natives with whom they trade uh, and interact with. And even at, at one end, they start mixing uh, and they start having uh, what, what we say in French, mitzage, where it's, uh, 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 I'm not sure how to translate this properly, but uh, I think the word would be interbreeding. I don't like the word particularly, but basically they, they, were, uh, they were in a very peaceful setting. So we have a setup where, again, in a situation of statelessness, high living standards, peaceful outcomes, uh, and especially high living standards relative to the other places at the time, especially the other French colony being Quebec. So one, one of the w- things I like that you did in the paper is you sort of set up this dichotomy between like what, what you called trading on the one hand and raiding on the other. And to tie up this yep. part of our conversation, ultimately what you saw is that the, the, the society, the area with a quote unquote weaker state or, or, or in your paper, what you call a nearly stateless area had certainly a lot more incentive to and a lot more trading going on rather than raiding. And as we know, colonial history, especially with when it comes to the French Empire and, and, the, and the British Empire in areas with, with strong state presence, there certainly was a lot of raiding going on as well. So that's, I think, an interesting yes. dichotomy. And where Acadia falls in that dichotomy, I think, is also interesting. I think the main reason there's this dichotomy, and I forgot to mention it's really important, is that when so the decision to trade or raid goes a little bit like this. If right? I'm the settler. Imagine it this way. I'm the settler on the frontier. I come from France, right? I have to convince the other side to take, I want to, I want to get the land, right? So I can either take it by force or I can trade for it, Hmm. right? Now, if I take it by force, I need to incur the cost of using force, right? That is in itself very costly, especially since the Indians did have some advantage. They knew the land, uh, they were well organized. They did have like a sophisticated system of of warfare. So they're not like a 
but they're not sheeps. They're very, very, very able to resist. Uh, and it seems like the historians seem to believe that there was no technological, that the, the, the superiority of firearms was in these settings because the, the natives had other advantages that counter that countermanded the weaponry of, of, of firearms. But now imagine that there is a state that's there and you can delegate the cost to people elsewhere, say like people in the main cities or even better in the mother country, right? I get all the benefits of taking your land, but I don't pay the cost. Right. So you can't raid easily, right? The only reason you would raid is if it is cheaper than negotiating, right? And the benefits are bigger. That's it. So trade or raid is seen like this. Raid is a more likely outcome under a strong state, right, than it is under a weak one. Uh, raid is more likely, sorry, trade, so a setting where the state is weak or stateless, right, than it is under a situation where there is a state because of the differential in how you can shift the cost of violence. Uh, and the reason why the Acadians tried so much to trade with the natives uh, and secured like a very peaceful relationship and actually constantly sent signals is that a, they gained from trading with them for the first, uh, but they also, it was just too costly to organize violence against them, uh, because they, they were the one bearing the entire burden of the costs. Uh, so they didn't, they traded rather than raided. So that's the reason why there's a, there's this theoretical explanation, uh, for it that explains very well as well the outcomes that come out because you have two groups that specialize in very different things. One group specializes in fur trapping, hunting and gathering. So surviving well in winter and selling a good that the Europeans want. And the other one is able to produce agricultural goods that increase the diet, the types of stuff that's consumed by the natives. But, uh, uh, so that basically they can trade with them and make the exchange so that both group are actually better off. And there's actually one sign that we didn't expand on me and Rosalino in the paper is that of all the population estimates of the different Indian nations, uh, uh, the Micmacs is the one that falls the, relative to other Indian nations because there is so very little war. And what population decrease appears to be is by virtue of the epidemiological shock of two groups that had different and uh, epidemiological history, I should say, uh, causing a population decrease but in this case it's mostly from the 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 shock of meeting but it's not a deeper it's not a shock that's as deep as you see for example the Algonquins the Iroquois the other Indian nations it's actually a much milder shock and uh an earlier pickup point so that when the population start recovering for the Micmacs uh so it's a really clear sign that things are doing better uh than elsewhere because in that setup uh, the the way governance goods were provided, they favored trade over raid. And ultimately, your paper does ask the the question: Could we have seen a, a history of more trade rather than raid when settlers came to to North America if there had been less state presence and less less of those incentives? Yes, and I actually do a follow up on that paper with Louis Rouenet. Uh, so we've just sent it out for consideration in a journal. We we looked at the Metis of the Canadian prairies, uh, where their relation where uh, they were a group of people that uh, basically were French 
and Indian mixes. So mitsis being a word for uh, uh, interbreeders, like basically mixed race is a way to kind of say it. Uh, and they acted as the kind of the go-between between, between uh, uh, other Indian nations and settlers in Manitoba. And they created a very peaceful trading environment for roughly six decades in Canadian history. So we have other examples of very peaceful relationships uh, between natives and settlers uh, when states, because the Manitoba back then was basically stateless. So we have other examples and we can easily imagine a setup where there's a counterfactual history of population in North America where there's more trade than raid and less violence between settlers and Indians. And and I really like one thing you touched on as well earlier, which is, and, and of course, because you're so used to the language, you kind of just said it and, and moved on, which was like sort of the, the delegation of the costs to another party for violence. And I think that's really key for people to sort of think about and understand. Yes. It's, it's funny when you think about it like that, right? Because as of right now, for instance, as Canadians and as Americans, as Americans, like that's really what's happening, right? The costs of, if you're pro-war and you're just sitting in your living room, the costs of all that violence has been delegated completely to another entity on the one hand, the state and other people on the other hand, soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a very yes. interesting point. The distribution of benefits is also equally important. Right. Because if I stand to gain from the use of violence, but the costs are not borne by me, but by somebody else, then I'm all in favor of it. Right. Right. And there's actually good work. If people are interested, like I can just like do a quick like mention. Uh, there's a great book. It's called Mammon and the Pursuit of Empire. It's by two economic historians, Lance Davis, and I forget his first name, but Huttenbeck. And they basically have the same argument for why the British Empire expanded so much. The British Empire was very beneficial to upper class Britons mm -hmm. uh, and upper class people in the colonies, right? Those who paid the burden for these massive benefits to a few groups are basically British middle class, British workers, and people in the, col the colonized societies, right? So it, their entire history of the, the British, the expansion of the British Empire is how distributed the costs and benefits are, basically. And in the presence of a state, you can use this distribution to shift the costs and to self get the benefits. In statelessness, maybe you can do it, but it's a much harder proposition to accomplish. In the statelessness, it's harder to turn around to your, to your neighbors or the other uh, two farms that are near you and say, hey, you know, you should bear all the costs of these benefits I'm going to receive. You should go raid that camp and I'll stay here. Yeah. It's not that it doesn't happen. I'm not saying that it's right, of violent lists, right? It's just, it's a much harder proposition. It is more likely to trade. That's it. Sorry. It is much like, it is much less likely that raid will happen in a stateless situation than in a state one, right? right? So it's a question of relatives. And in terms of the mechanism, it seems to suggest that you can't delegate the cost of violence to somebody else in statelessness as much. I'm looking at the clock here. Time's winding down a little bit. But be before we quit the subject, we definitely want, want to tie sort of a finer point on, on, on at least this section of our conversation. Or should I say that the two sections where we deal with medieval Iceland and, uh, and Acadia. So someone listening to this, the last two thirds of the conversation here might go, well, Acadia sounds great. Medieval Iceland sounds great. You mentioned a little earlier that there's something we need to add into our conversation before we leave the subject, which is the, the instability of these scenarios. So why don't you go a bit yeah. into that and why why it's important for us not to just stop the episode here and say, and there you go, all this stuff works. Uh, the thing is, is it, it never lasts. The Acadians ends in, the Acadian example ends in tragedy when British settlers 
in New England are like, look, we this is an opportunity to seize land as good as any. So let's deport all the French Canadians from this area and let's take their shit. Right. It ends like this. This is how the story ends. And that example when I was writing and how it ended, because I also wrote papers on the mechanisms by which it ended. Uh, and they've been they've been published. One of them is in essays in economic and business history, if people are interested. But when the Acadian example ends, I was like, but why does it end? And it seemed that there is an explanation that's very simple. So imagine that you have a society that has a strong state next to you and you're rich and have a weak state. There is a great incentive for the, the rich state society to just get your shit by violence. Uh, that's it. And that's uh, something that me and uh, Alex Salter expanded on in a piece in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization where we explained why it is that we don't find long-lasting examples throughout history right, that are still there today at the very least of societies that are stateless and rich. It's because it's an unstable equilibrium. Either you get conquered, right, which is basically what happens to Acadia, and to a certain degree Iceland as well, uh, both of them basically get um, being swallowed by more advanced states, uh, or you have to yourself build a state to resist the predation of others, which basically means that it's not that the state causes the creation of wealth, so that like people who make the argument for for states generally make like the scientific justification for the state is that the state produces the public goods necessary for growth, for output to increase. So the governance goods that are needed. Uh, Our argument, me and Alex, is that no, that's not how it runs, is that your your state is the result of investments to protect your wealth from predators, right? It's not that the state causes growth, is that you need it's once you have a certain level of wealth that you develop a state. Right. So there is not an argument. So our argument is flips the causality around that the relation from state from and from between growth and between economic growth and states is better states that provide public goods yield growth. We say no, high growth, high growth and high living standards generate a state, either by conquest, so you get a state imposed upon you, or uh, because you can't defend your wealth, or you develop a state to resist the predation of other states. Uh, And that explains why it's not a stable equilibrium. And the part why I kind of say that, yeah, anarcho-capitalists are somewhat crazy, because this won't last, and it won't exist forever. We understand that it seems to yield good outcomes when we do study it. but it doesn't seem to be able to last because of that strong mechanism uh, that makes it unstable, which is why you have rich societies with strong states, poor society with weak states, and some examples of strong states with poor societies, but never a weak state with rich society that lasts forever. And Vincent, our time here is completely wound down now. And it's time for us to conclude the episode, bring it full circle, put a finer point on our exploration of the question. So let me ask you, what, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on whether anarcho-capitalists have absolutely crazy ideas? If, if they are insane, if we're going to tie up everything in the episode, what's the one or two things you want to leave people with if they ask that question to themselves? If, if you're a good social scientist you're interested in the questions themselves. And 
what implications can you derive from answering that question? I'm not even sure what the implication are from what I'm saying, but it does suggest at least the following, which I'm comfortable with stating, is that states are not the cause of economic growth. States are outcomes of economic growth. And that is the one thing I can say at the very least that my research kind of leaves out. So the anarcho-capitalists are not wrong, right? The ability of human beings to organize uh, in ways that allow trade to flourish is greatly underestimated, and it seems to yield very efficient outcomes. Uh, the sad part is that it seems that there must be some state that emerges at one point. Uh, a state is basically kind of a more of a stable equilibrium than no states. So then the one thing from this that I think we can say for sure is that the state is not the actor of economic growth. That is the part that I derive from this uh, that makes me, uh, I'm more comfortable with saying, uh, even though it kind of also implies from the rest of what I'm also saying is that I'm not sure because this is like the one question like I hate when libertarians ask me this is, would you press the button, right? To bring it all crumbling down to the ground? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I'd like it sometimes, but there are clear signs that it, it wouldn't last or it could be worse. Uh, but I can at least say for sure that uh, statelessness is not this negative depiction uh, that people have in their mind. It seems to be quite better than people realize. I think that's an excellent place to end it. So we'll do that right now. Thanks for joining me on The Curious Task today, Vincent Chiloso. It was a pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. <laughs>